So welcome to the IFA podcast on nitrogen fixing microbials. I'm delighted to have two eminent panelists with me today, one from the academic side and one from the industry side. Our first guest speaker is Professor Manish Raizada, professor in the Department of Plant Agriculture at the University of Guelph in Canada. His research laboratory investigates beneficial microbes for crops. He also develops sustainable agriculture kits for smallholder farmers in Africa and Asia, which have thus far impacted almost 300,000 rural people. Our second guest is um, Mr. Marcus Middlesmith, Chief of Executive Officer of BioConsortia in the US, a leading company in the discovery of microbial crop protection and crop enhancement product. Prior to that, he was a CEO of AgraQuest, a company involved in agrochemicals and biopesticides. And following Bayer's acquisition of AgraQuest, he became head of biologics for Bayer Crop Science. So why nitrogen fixing microbials? That simple, sustainable agriculture requires an integrated approach to plant nutrition, and the fertilizer industry is becoming a provider of plant nutrition solutions, going from mineral fertilizers to biostimulants, including precision farming. No doubt, microbials that either fix nitrogen from the air or that solubilize uh, nutrients and improve their availability are part of the toolbox available to farmers to optimize plant nutrition management. Bacteria that fix nitrogen from the air exist in nature. Some have developed symbiotic or win-win relationships with leguminous species such as soybean. Others have developed loser associations with a wider range of crops, which is the topic of our podcast. While these microbials are known for a long period of time, a lot are still to be understood and discovered as we know a teeny part only of the underground microbiome, which obviously offers great opportunities. Well, Marcus, how do you define microbials? We also hear the term biologicals. What is the difference between both terms? So if I start at the very high level, biologicals covers a whole class of products which now are about $5 billion of sales around the world, and they constitute biofertilizers, biostimulants, and biological control products, uh, so biopesticides. Um, within those categories, what we find is there are biochemical products, which are things like plant extracts or semiochemicals. And then there are also microorganisms such as beneficial insects and mites and nematodes um, and classes like seaweed extracts. But the largest class, more than half of the um, whole market is actually microbials and these are beneficial bacteria beneficial fungi virus and protozoan and yeast so these are living uh, microbes um, that are put on and they work across all the all of those categories so microbials can be used as biofertilizers as biostimulants to promote growth and also for um, biopesticides Manish, what is the mode of action of associative nitrogen-fixing bacteria? 
and on which crops do they work well? When you breathe in the air, actually 80% of what you're breathing in is not oxygen, it's nitrogen gas. The problem with that nitrogen gas is that it's very difficult to make it available to plants. There's an industrial process that requires heating that gas to above 400 to 650 degrees Celsius under high pressure. But the amazing thing is there are some bacteria which have an enzyme called nitrogenase which can do the same thing. And we know that in legume crops, as you mentioned earlier, they have some underground structures, roots, uh, plant structures called nodules, uh, in which these bacteria can live. Now, in some other crops, like uh, sugarcane, uh, switchgrass, also known as miscanthus, corn, uh, wheat, rice, it has been observed that there are more, we can say, free-living bacteria that have the same enzyme that can do this. Where do these bacteria live? In sugarcane, they live in the stems. Uh, in corn, there's a fascinating indigenous type of corn in Mexico, uh, where, uh, and that corn has above ground aerial roots at the tips of those roots, uh, these bacteria live. Uh, in corn, uh, it's also seen that you can have these nitrogen fixing bacteria on the surfaces of underground roots. So there's a, a variety of uh, habitats depending on the crop. And how many ki kilograms of nitrogen can these bacteria fix uh, per hectare under field conditions? And how does it compare uh, with plant uh, nitrogen requirements? One of the challenges you see in, a, in, in trying to answer that question is that there, there can be a lot of variability uh, between different studies. Um, part of that has to do with variability in soil conditions, the crop variety. But, it, uh, but if I look at some reliable numbers, what we can see, for example, the best uh, studied crop is probably sugarcane. In sugarcane, it looks like it's about 15 to 150 kilograms of nitrogen per hectare. So that varies about tenfold. Uh, that supplies about, let's say, 5 to 60% of the nitrogen demand. In switchgrass, it's about one-seventh of its nitrogen demand. In corn, I mentioned this indigenous land race in Mexico. There, it's been reported in the literature that these bacteria can supply 30 to 80% of the nitrogen demand, which is very remarkable for that crop, and that's a gigantic uh, corn plant. There are some emerging products uh, on the commercial market for hybrid, modern hybrid corn. And in that case, the, at least one of the best reports I've seen is about 25 kilograms per hectare. Um, so, so let's say assuming a, a nitrogen demand of about 200 kilograms per hectare, that's about one eighth of the nitrogen supply. But it does vary. You'll see reports that are higher and reports that are lower. So nitrogen fixation generally stops when nitrogen is present in the environment. Is there any way of overcoming these control mechanism? Yeah, so microbes are actually quite smart that um, nitrogen fixation is a very energy intensive process, either if it's if nitrogen's made um, in a chemical plant, it's energy intensive. It's also energy intensive for the microbe. So microbes actually have feedback loops and when they sense that there is enough ammonia in the in its local surroundings or in the plant or in the soil then it will switch off production so what we're doing is actually gene editing these microbes to knock out or switch off that off switch so the microbe now will continuously fix atmospheric nitrogen and make it available to the plant so looking now at the markets what are the main markets for microbials 
are these intensive agricultural systems in the Western world or instead low input agriculture in developing countries? Today, the, the biggest markets are Europe and North America. They represent, each of them, about 30% of the global market. About 20% is used in Latin America, and that would include a lot of the rhizobia that goes on to, to soybeans. Um, the rest of the world is really quite a small per percentage. So it is in high production uh, agriculture. And until today, the biggest focus has been um, biopesticides for high-value fruit and veg, where the microbial is bringing the benefit of no uh, pesticidal or no regulated pesticidal revenue uh, residue on the crop. But we've seen more and more that um, microbials are being found that are actually effective on row crops. And the biggest uh, seed treatment in, in the US is actually Poncho Votivo, which is a combination of chemistry plus a microbe. So Votivo is the microbe in that combination um, used on corn and soybean across the US by the largest proportion of growers. So natural evolution has done a great job already optimizing the microbiome in soils. Can we do much better? Patrick, I love this question, and it's a question that both disturbs me and intrigues me um, for the reason that crop plants have had at least 120 million years, arguably much longer, to associate with bacteria, and certainly plants have been growing in nature under nitrogen limitation. And so then the question is, if nature couldn't have done this in 100 million years, what can we do? So I have two answers to this question. Uh, first is, are we missing currently what the microbiome has achieved. And one example of this is that corn, ancient corn land race in Mexico that I mentioned, where earlier Mexican and later American scientists discovered that it has these above ground roots. And at the tips of those roots is this mucilage. And, and that mucilage is full of bacteria, which fix nitrogen. That was something that had been missed. So there may be op these kind of niche habitat opportunities that we have missed or that we have lost in our modern breeding. So that's the first thing. We need more research to find these habitats. Th the second way I would answer this is, what can we do that natural evolution did not have an opportunity to, to do? For example, to keep pace with modern crop breeding. Our crops are dramatically different in the last 70 years, for example. We may have been uh, those changes may have, uh, we may not have been keeping the microbiome up with those changes, or perhaps to adapt to changes in agronomic practices. For example, the various chemical inputs that we're adding, or what can be achieved by just adding larger doses that, uh, of a microbe that normally would not happen in nature. Those are just three kind of examples, perhaps of what we can do that nature, uh, natural evolution has not had a chance to do. Hmm. Marcus, could you tell us how, and in a simple manner, how do you select efficient nitrogen fixing uh, microbials? So actually just talking to, to your last question, um, 
We actually use selective pressure and a process of evolution as the first step of our discovery process. So we operate more like plant breeders. And what we do is we get dozens of different soils with trillions of different strains of microbes in the background from a whole diversity of soils. We then grow corn seeds in those uh, soils. So we've collect the various microbiomes from those different soils. We then put it onto another substrate where there is very low um, nitrate levels in the, in the soil. And so we're growing the, the seeds under a nitrogen stress. So there could be an absence of nitrogen or very low nitrogen. And so when we grow a, a thousand plants, most of them will look very sickly and yellow because they don't have enough nitrogen for healthy growth. But we see the occasional plant out of those thousands of seeds that's growing green and healthy and large and strong. And it's those plants where we go to and we isolate the individual microbes off that plant because it's clear that they have um, somehow recruited from the background soil the beneficial microbes that are actually fixing atmospheric nitrogen and giving it to the plant in the form that it needs. So in that process, we actually do that through several generations. And through that process, we evolve the microbiome and we enrich for these beneficial nitrogen fixing microbes and as a result we found many uh, new species of microbes that are actually fixing atmospheric nitrogen the problem with that is that when we then put them into an environment where there is a lot of fertilizer a, a grower is going to apply 200 pounds per acre or 200 kilos per, per hectare, more or less, of nitrogen into the soil. And as I mentioned before, they have this off switch that switches off this nitrogen fixing mechanism. So we still have to go through this process of gene editing and knocking out that off switch to make sure that they will do it in standard agronomic and farming conditions. What are your main selection criteria be beyond nitrogen fixation rate? And what is in the research pipeline if we look at the longer term horizon 2030 or 2040? So for our nitrogen fixing project, we have um, actually got a collaboration with Mosaic for row crops in the Americas. And we're very focused on bringing forward a highly effective nitrogen fixing uh, product that is going to be put out there with their portfolio of phosphate and potassium fertilizers. So our initial focus um, in the coming years is maximizing that nitrogen fixation. The initial products we target, a grower should be able to reduce nitrogen input by about 25%. In the long term, it would be good to say 75%. I think as we've seen with soybeans that where they've had a millennia to um, develop that symbiotic relationship. Even soybean uh, growers still apply a small amount of, of conventional fertilizer to get the crop started. So we see that the first wave is getting a 25 to 30% reduction of fertilizer. The next step would be a 75% reduction of fertilizer. And then we actually look to combining those nitrogen fixing microbes with other microbes that can do things like 
phosphate and potassium solubilization. So making other nutrients available to the plant or combining it with microbes that stimulate plant growth and plant yield, um, or even adding in some of our biopesticides that I mentioned. So we actually add a consortia or a small team of microbes that are providing um, the plant with the necessary protection and means to grow healthy and high yielding. This is all about getting the grower to be able to grow sustainably um, and grow higher yields and make uh, more profit for, for each individual grower. What is the best approach between breeding microbes or plants? I would say the answer is both. Uh, you know, one of the one of the challenges with this technology is that growers often complain there can be considerable variability in the field, and and that's perhaps not surprising. So some of the challenges, for example, are, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later. Uh, sometimes growers uh, for different microbial products you know, they'll get products that are less viable. So that's already one challenge. Then of course, growers are different, are growing different crop varieties. And as it turns out, just like all of us here, you know, at some point in our lives, we may have had a challenge trying to find the perfect mate. Well, this is a dating game, uh, as it turns out, between a microbe and a plant. Uh, sometimes they're compatible and sometimes they're not. Sometimes we think a microbe is great for a plant and the plant says, ah, you're terrible. You're my enemy. You're not my friend. And so we have cases, many examples, where a microbe works well with um, a particular varieties of corn, not other varieties of corn, but then might work with wheat, for example. And that's because the host has certain uh, genetic variants that uh, al allow it to be compatible or not with microbes. So, and then the, the third issue is that plants have uh, micro microbes uh, exist in complex communities, microbiomes. So if you're adding a microbe, you have to compete with the endogenous microbiome in the plant, in the soil. So all of those are opportunities for breeding. That means, for example, breeding on the plant side, uh, uh, you know, breeding for these compatibility genes to accept the microbes. It means breeding the microbes to be more stable, more viable by the time to get to the farmer. It also means breeding both of them so that an introduced microbe can compete with the, the native microbiome, either in the soil or, or in, different, uh, in different plants. So, you know, we can perhaps call this co-breeding breeding both the plant and the microbe, um, especially under different environments, different soil environments, temperatures, and different varieties. Looking at the policy and regulatory environment from a business perspective, are there policy or regulatory constraints that need to be alleviated in order to develop the market? So in the United States, we actually have a very favorable uh, regime for the registration of biological products. So it's, it's um, fast, efficient, and relatively low cost while protecting the environment and the consumer. So it goes through a biopesticide, will go through an EPA uh, registration, um, but it is accelerated and lower cost than a conventional product. So has really encouraged um, a lot of uh, products and developments of the biological markets. In Europe, um, unfortunately, there is a lot of demand for organic and sustainable uh, farming. There's been a lot of um, delisting or banning of 
some conventional chemistry. So there is a lot of pent-up demand in Europe, but unfortunately, the regulatory timeframe for uh, microbials is is very slow and and very costly in comparison uh, to the US. The other um, issue with with Europe, as we've mentioned, specifically for nitrogen fixing microbes, we need to gene edit. So this isn't a genetic modification by the addition of genes from another species. This is um, just unleashing the natural power of of the microbes. Um, And until just this week, to be honest, uh, the EU has been very negative around gene editing um, and considered it um, a uh, system that they did not want to regulate. There is now at least a discussion going on at the ministerial level saying that actually this is a natural process and this is something that they're now considering to regulate. So we hope those discussions go in the right way and that this is a tool that would be available to European growers um, as it will be available to growers in the rest of the world. Now, looking at the shelf life, uh, is preserving viability of microbials a challenge? And if so, what solutions have been developed or are being investigated? So, Patrick, I know that you've done some very nice work in Africa and care a lot about African farmers, um, as do I. And, in you know, uh, there's been a lot of experience in terms of selling rhizobia bacteria for nitrogen fixation in legume crops, um, such as beans, for example. And what uh, what has been shown is that uh, many of the microbes that are received by those farmers are, in fact, dead or they have very little viability. And so that has to do then with high or low temperatures during shipping. Sometimes it has to do with the microbes getting contaminated with other organisms. And so in the end, what you have is something that's not very useful. Now, you do have some types of bacteria that produce spores. These are bacilli. And you can think of those. Those can last potentially millions of years. So those are highly stable. But then you have other classes of bacteria like the rhizobia and many of the bacteria we're talking about today. Uh, which face that challenge. Now, the good news is everyone knows this, and there's a lot of effort to try to improve the viability of these microbes. I think these solutions fall into three classes. One is essentially to try to uh, protect the microbes themselves. Some companies, for example, are encapsulating them uh, in different formulas to try to protect them from fluctuations in temperature. There's a startup company in the US, for example, they're trying to solve the last mile challenge. What that means is they're trying to develop kind of refrigerated, uh, you know, warehouses, bioreactors very close to the farmers. So the microbes can be grown right there and sold right there. And, you know, the third approach here would be a breeding approach. So, you know, breeding the microbes to, to withstand these practical challenges. And regarding the delivery of microbials, could you tell us about actual formulations and how are they used? So um, in general, we have to talk about here, how are the microbes uh, applied? So the options are seed coating, directly, you know, obviously directly onto the seeds, or as sprays. And these could be foliar sprays or, or you know, soil sprays. In some cases, perhaps delivery through um you know, fertigation lines as well. Um, often these microbes may have some sort of a sticky agent, if it's more of a foliar um, spray, to allow them to um, stick to a leaf surface or a sticky agent to allow them to stick to the seed surface. Um, 
And there's, if you look through the US patent database, there's various innovations going on here exactly to this point. Um, there's a lot of money to be made here in terms of stabilizing these microbes. Uh, different manufacturers um, are, are optimizing the dosage for their particular microbes. So it, it varies from just a few microbes per seed to a large number. Um, so it does vary based on the microbe and the crop. The application, as I said, could be on soil. It could be as, if, if it's a soil um, spray or a soil drench, it could be as a, stir, a starter or as a side dress um, application. Um, so that's sort of the, it, it depends on the microbe, it depends on the crop, and quite frankly, it depends on the company and the technology. And coming back to the market, how does the market grow? And in your view, what is its potential? So the uh, biopesticide market has been growing at about 10% per annum, and the biostimulant and biofertilizer markets at about 15% per annum. And that's with the current wave of products, which, to be honest, have been higher priced than conventional chemistry, less efficacious and less consistent than than conventional chemistry, but people have needed to use them in order to control pesticide residues to get that increased yield um, and have found a place for them. And the market has grown to $5 billion, as I mentioned, um, just with the current wave of products. But the products we see coming to market in the next few years are as good as chemistry, they are highly effective, they um, are highly consistent, and they have um, a place in the market that is going to start challenging chemistry more and more. Um, so I see this rate of growth accelerating. So if we think we're $5 billion today, and yet the fertilizer market is a $200 billion market, and the pesticide market as a $70 billion market, there is an awful lot of upside um, that can be taken in, in the coming years. As I mentioned, our target is to reduce fertilizer inputs by around 25%. So you can do the maths on 25% of $200 billion. And um, there is going to be a lot of rapid growth in, in the coming years in the fertilizer sector. So and let's uh, ask a concluding question and uh, to the two of you. Um, could you tell the auditors how important the soil microbiome is in determining crop yield performance? And uh, have we overlooked it in, in the past? Maybe let's start with Manish. So I love this question. First of all, uh, you know, unlike chemistry, where you have a single nutrient like nitrogen, I think one can look at microbials as a multifunction technology. Not only can they deliver nitrogen potentially, but they can deliver smarter roots. Uh, or you can trick the roots, for example, to grow when the soils are waterlogged. These microbes can combat pests. They can combat pathogens. Uh, they can secrete little chemicals that stimulate the plant's own natural defenses. So just one microbe can have mul multiple multifunction benefits. But in the broader picture, research in the human gut microbe microbiome has shown that microbes help control the brain, uh, help control our decisions. In plants, we know that bacteria can control uh, root organ formation. Imagine if I added, sprayed you with a bacteria, Patrick, and you grew a new arm. That's what bacteria can do to plants. Um, they can increase rates of photosynthesis. They actually produce the same hormones that plants do to control themselves. So it shows us right there 
that we're underestimating the plant microbiome. We've seen, uh, we've seen microbes move towards a pathogen. Plant cells cannot move. They're locked in by plant, uh, plant walls. So in that regard, microbes here appear to be acting like human immunity cells. So I think, uh, and I'm just talking about a few individual bacteria here. If you were to look inside the root or leaf of any plant, uh, there are hundreds to thousands of different species hundreds of millions of individual bacteria. So, and I believe every single one of them has a story. So yes, I think we are tremendously underestimating the, the potential of the crop microbiome to modern agriculture. I think there has been awareness of the importance of the microbiome because growers have always put on, on fungicides and uh, bactericides to protect their crop from the negative elements of the microbiome. So if you planted a corn crop without a, a chemical seed treatment on, you would lose a large proportion of, of your yield. So there is an awareness of the negative side of, of the microbiome that's in the, in the soil. A natural microbiome nature looks for a balance and has positives and negatives what we're trying to do is trying to redress that balance and identify the beneficial microbes that are going to unlock the power and deliver much higher yields as a result so rather than focusing on the pythium diseases we know how to control that we're now looking for microbes that can fix atmospheric nitrogen and as i said unleash the potential of these beneficial microbes so that we can grow higher yielding crops in a more sustainable way it is time to conclude this inspiring podcast and a big thank you to our two uh, distinguished speakers for having shared the insights with us Thank you also to our auditors, and we look forward to having you with us for future IFA podcasts.